The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to another edition of NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Kim Peralta, grew up in a non-religious family in New York City and describes herself as being agnostic when she began her decades-long study of yoga. Given that fact, she was startled one day to feel the guiding hand of a spirit being correcting her posture. Since that awakening experience, she has been sensitive to other personal mystical experiences in her life, including psychic communications with her son. Kim uh, began practicing Iyengar yoga in 1987 under the late senior Iyengar teacher Mary Dunn. She began training in India at the Iyengar Institute in 1989 and was certified in 1991. In 1992, she and a handful of teachers co-founded the Iyengar Yoga Institute of New York and in 96 was granted permission by BKS Iyengar to open the Iyengar Yoga School of Northern New Jersey where she was director for 12 years. Her teaching certificate was upgraded to Intermediate 3 in 1997 and she eventually moved to Maine in 2013 and opened the Iyengar uh, Yoga Center in Brooksville, Maine, about 20 minutes from where I live, as a matter of fact. Kim, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi. Hi. Uh, Kim, it, I've, uh, I've often said that we're all entitled to at least one personal mystical encounter with the other side in our <laughs> lives. And if we're open to it, it can alter the future direction of our lives. And I want to talk to you today about the mystical aspects of yoga. But let's begin with that spirit being that corrected your alignment and be, and began your curiosity about the spiritual. Okay. Well, um, uh, this was, um, gosh, uh, over 30 years ago now. I wasn't a yoga teacher at that time, but I was interested in yoga mostly for the physical benefits. Um and I was uh, taking part in a yoga retreat, um, and uh, there was a uh, the retreat was in a um, a renovated monastery. It was it, which had been turned into an ashram in Pennsylvania. And uh, in the ashram, there was a little room where you could um, go in any time. It was always open, and it was like a little meditation room where anybody who wanted to, who felt like it, could go in and sit and meditate. And it was about the size of the average bathroom, very small. Um, there was a little shrine uh, and a little seat where you could sit down on the floor in front of it and a, little, and a clock on the shelf and, um, you know, a nice carpet on the floor and, and all peaceful. So one day I was in there um, meditating and I just felt um, a hand um, gently but very deliberately um, realign my sacrum, which is the base, you know, the triangular bone at the base of the spine. When that bone is misaligned, um, you know, your posture suffers and uh, when you're meditating that you have to have, um, an, your spine has to be erect. So I just felt this, it was like they were, it was giving me a correction um, and, you know, realigning my spine. It was very gentle, very deliberate. I felt it very, it was warm, it was penetrating. I felt I could almost see the, it, it was, 
the waves, it kind of came in waves through my body. And I felt very surely that it was female. I just had this feeling uh, that it was female. Mm. Um, it also felt like um, she was, uh, it was uh, crouching down by me on my right side uh, and, and as she was adjusting me. And it only lasted a few seconds. Uh, I turned around. I knew I was alone in the room, but I turned around anyway, and of course I was alone in the room. The, 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 there was only one door into the room, and that door was um, three feet behind me. It was such a tiny room. Um, and I just absolutely know that it was real. It was, it was not my imagination. Um, of course, you know, most people would say, oh, that's just your imagination, and I can't prove it to them that it wasn't, but I know. I just know that it wasn't. <laughs> uh, I went back to my dormitory. I was sharing a room with um colleague who was also on the retreat, and she she was not um, an agnostic at all. She was very much uh, into, um, you know, otherworldly experiences and everything, and she immediately said, oh, that's your spirit guide. She said, that must be your spirit guide. She said, everybody has one. And after that, I just um, started softening up a little bit on my um, sort of agnostic-slash-atheistic stance <laughs> um, and began to, um, you know, just kind of open my mind up to, to the idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, um a lot of people, I guess, uh, decide to practice yoga for their physical fitness. Right. As you did back then. Um, and probably not too many, I don't know if this is true of your students, but not too many see it as a spiritual practice as well. Um, well, um, there are wonderful, wonderful physical benefits. Um, mm-hmm. And it's perfectly normal and natural and right that people should come to take yoga for the physical benefits. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But there is a whole, uh, philosophical side to it, which, um, most teachers are not teaching. It depends on where you study, you know, um, there are, uh, there are, you know, uh, styles of yoga here in the West who emphasize more the philosophy than the actual physical part of it. Uh, you know, it just depends on what style you, you end up with, um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, so. Well, um, since, uh, you know the nature of this show, <laughs> right. I, um, my direction would be to, uh, talk about the, uh, the spiritual mm-hmm. aspects yeah, of IMR. And, and so t- tell us a little about that. You, you told me that, um, this comes back, uh, I mean, the, today's tradition of yoga comes out of, uh, the deep historic roots of, um, of Hindu. Right. Um, so mysticism. In, in Indian philosophy, there are um, six branches of the Hindu religion, and, and now we're talking like a long time ago. This is, it was all sort of uh, formalized, uh, you know, a thousand, think a thousand BCE, <laughs> mm. you know. Um, so, and yoga is one of those branches. Okay. Uh, I'm not an expert on any of those other branches of yoga, of, of, mm-hmm. of Indian philosophy, rather. Um, um, I, and I know what I know about yoga from my own practice and, you know, the style that I've studied, the teachers that I've had. Um, so yoga goes back in the mists of time 
uh, it was never written down until about 2,000 uh, years ago, um, and that is accredited to Patanjali. Um, and there may be more than one author, um, but today, and, and a lot of people are trying to find out, uh, you know, doing historical. I don't know if they will ever know if there was if, if it was just one person or more than one, but he was the first person to write down um, the teachings of yoga. Up until that point, it had just been transmitted orally from teacher to student and um, mainly to very upper-class, wealthy royalty, and it certainly wasn't taught to women. Um, that was a... If it, and there, were, there have been some famous... Uh, you know, there are some yoginis that go back in history, but they're very few and far between. Um, yes. Mostly a male thing, yeah. So, when he wrote it down, that potentially made it accessible to all of us. Yeah. As long as women were allowed to read. Right. In, now, in some now societies. Uh, he, what he did was he organized it into eight steps. Ashtanga. Ash uh-huh. means eight. Anga means a step or a ladder or a rung of a ladder. And he... Um, so that people like the average person like you and me could, um, you know, understand and reap the benefits of the practice in a practical step-by-step way. Okay. Okay. And so the type of yoga that I practice and teach is based on the work of Patanjali. I'm an Iyengar teacher, and my teacher, BKS Iyengar, uh, uh, bases his work on Patanjali, on the writings of Patanjali, and specifically the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are a, a series of terse um, aphorisms. Um, you know, each each sentence containing a <clears throat> a world of wisdom and um, a world of interpretation as well. Actually, well, the, here's a question that will show my ignorance of yoga. I I studied Qigong for a while and. Um, what, what is the nature of chi as, as yoga understands it, and how is That's that? That's prana. In, yo, in, in yoga okay. language, that, the Sanskrit word for that is prana, which means energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. It also means breath. See, Sanskrit words um, have uh, a multiple meanings, uh, so you have to be very careful when you when you want to use a Sanskrit word to check out all the different meanings, uh, make sure that you're getting it right. Um, and so, you know, uh, but in any case, chi refers to, chi is the same, you can interpret that as prana. Okay. Yeah. And breath, of course, in the Judeo-Christian tradition is what God breathed into us. Mm, yeah. That's, that's the energy of, 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 of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, uh, does yoga consider that aspect of it as well? Well, uh, with yoga, you're moving through the layers of the body, of the, of the human being. Uh, and the body is the grossest, and the breath is more subtle. You follow? So you go from um, the outer layers to the inner layers. You know, there's the body, there's the emotions, there's the intellect. You follow? These are all layers of our human embodiment. Mm-hmm. And um, the breath is, um, you know, in terms of the physical practice of yoga, that's another further... The, the purpose of yoga is to penetrate the mind, is to go deeper into the mind. And and the premise is that the mind is not the brain. It exists outside, eternally, outside of the brain. Okay. Right. The brain is just something that filters the mind. And um, so the breath 
when you do breath work, when you do pranayama, which means control of the breath, you are um, going more deeply into the mind than asana, which is the postures, the physical part. But you begin with asana, because if you don't begin with asana, you don't have a good handle on how to do the pranayama, because it's still physical. So, you know, seated meditation... Asana practice and pranayama, these are all physical pursuits. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are, they inten- hmm? are they intended to quiet the brain so that yes, you can... Yes, they're intended to uh, create... Um, okay, so all day long, the body is an object and the brain is kind of... This, or, you know, our senses are uh, what's coming into us. We're like the subject. The experiencer is the subject. The body, when you do yoga, becomes the subject. And the, 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 it's hard to explain to Gosh, I, <laughs> um, if you, um, you cannot really, if, if you, you can't really differentiate between the two. There's no real split between the mind and the body. You get there, you can get there through the body. Okay, that's the premise of Iyengar yoga anyway, that it's the, you know, the, um, the penetration has to begin at the skin. It goes to the muscle, that goes to the bone, it goes to the nerves, it goes to the breath. Um, and ultimately, you shed your awareness of the, those layers and you commune with the, the larger self, the self with a capital S, the cosmic self, of which we are all a part. So, you know, the idea that the individual self, you, me, um, and every other human being is uh, a manifestation a temporary physical manifestation of the right. larger self. Which and that, is and that... that's how it ties into your radio show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you talk about a capital S, are, do, could you uh, attach the word soul to that? Yes. Well, then, they, then you get into, well, okay, but the soul is still individual, is it not? Yes. So we're not talking about the soul, really. We're talking about the great consciousness of big soup that we're all in, you know. <laughs> so then let me ask you, how could someone be um, practicing yoga with that uh, with that information and that knowledge and that pursuit mm-hmm. and still be either agnostic or atheist? Well, um, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, I have no idea about anybody else, but in terms of myself, I would say that I was in, I was... Um, I just was, it's not so much denial, but I was in ignorance of, uh, you know, because I also practiced yoga for most of, I mean, I've been, let's see, I've been practicing since, um, I've actually been practicing longer than I've been teaching, so I've been practicing um, this method of yoga anyway since 1986, and I was actually even practicing before that since I was a kid, so without having a teacher. Um, um, But with you know, I never connected to the two because I, I just did it as a physical practice. It fascinated me physically. I loved the way that it made me feel after a practice, but I never equated it with any kind of, um, you know, afterlife or anything like that. I just I never bothered to um, connect the dots, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was telling you the other day, Lee, I, I actually came around from a different place to this um realization it didn't really you know i i connected it to yoga later on 
I was actually reading a lot of quantum mechanics and quantum physics books, and that's where I started thinking that there was uh, an afterlife, that we don't just that we go on, that, that we don't just die. And it was that it was through reading the science um, that um, I guess I was such a practical person that it took the science to, to get me to 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 get to, um, to to become interested, even you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, well, the science and and um, enlightened religion seem to be going in the same direction. I mean, they're both in the pursuit of truth, and if yeah. truth is truth, then they yeah. will come to the same point. Exactly, it, that's correct. And as we know, these truths have been set down for thousands of years. That the quantum physicists are now, um, you know, um, confirming. Right, and and the interest now that science has in the nature of consciousness is also the probably what uh, somebody who's deeply into yoga or qigong for that matter uh, can can uh, identify with yes I mean you see I'm not one to take things um, I'm not so gullible I don't I you know when I I was always exposed ever since I started I mean I've been exposed to the philosophical part of yoga but I, I would stop short at believing in a god you know I would just stop short at that Um mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I don't, I still don't like the word because it's just too loaded, you know. There's so much um, hysteria around the word, whether you're an atheist or whether you're religious. I mean, it's all, um, I don't think organized religion has it right, and I don't think the atheists have it right either. Right, Um, or organized religion has tended to contaminate it by putting uh, limitations and definitions and rules and regulations Attaching that to their to their understanding of God. Yeah. I mean, um, we do have, you know, we do have our own um, guidelines in yoga, and you could call them rules. They're very similar to the Ten Commandments. Um, the premise, of, the foundation, the bedrock of yoga is ahimsa, nonviolence, do no harm. You cannot proceed with the on the path of yoga unless you become nonviolent, and that has a lot to do with the violence that we do on ourselves. And then when we have bad posture, we're being violent to our spinal column. We're being violent to the body. You could look at it that way. And in in that way, the philosophy, spiritual aspect connects directly to the physical. And that's what we teach in the Iyengar system. You know, you don't put your foot in one direction and not turn your knee the same way, because if you do, you're going to hurt your knee. You're going to get knee damage. Um, So, you know, the alignment, the precise alignment that we teach has to do with ahimsa. It is do no harm. You know, it's the first rule of teaching. Right. That's what's on yet, our, as a teacher, that's what is uppermost on our minds always. When you look at Hindu society, though, there's, just in the class system alone, there's a lot of violence. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita is the, the, the uh, you know, the foundation for the caste system. I mean, you know, come on. Yes, that's what I'm, I mean, organ- I don't, all organized religions. I've never met one that didn't have a lot of violence. And um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, even if it is meant to be allegorical, uh, even so, it's you know, there are people who take that stuff literally. Oh yes. And that's well, the, the entire Old Testament is, yeah. I mean, full of yes. violence and, and describes a violent God for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it's okay to uh, for the rest of us to look at it and say, oh, well, esoterically, it doesn't mean that. We can interpret it. But I, what I'd like to say is, what's always I've always wondered, if someone wanted to write down 
to give us help in our human existence, and they wanted to give us some guidelines. Why would they disguise it? Why would they put it in terms of, you know, um, a, a picture of, you know, a war or a violence of any kind? Why don't they just say what it is? Why don't they, you know, I've always wondered, um, and I and I come to the conclusion that it's because human beings always want to control each other, and they use well, religion to do that. The structure of okay. uh, material, the material world seems to be duality, and yeah. and that that gets redefined into good and evil, yeah. and therefore you've you've got a built-in struggle psychologically without even right. trying. But you know, but to but to put it in terms of stories, uh, knowing full well that people are going to believe it literally. I mean, that to me is that's not a, that's not that great. You know, <laughs> I've always had a problem oh. with that. You know. Well, funda- fundamental religion doesn't take it as an allegory. They they take it as literal. Literal. And, that's what I'm saying. There's always a and, da- danger. You know, danger. And then it and then it becomes a political tool, yeah, exactly. and uh, that's. Really, what's destroying? Uh, I, th- I think destroying Christianity today, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a big church. There are there are a lot of different. Um, it's a huge church. It has a lot. Of, it has very right wing and very left wing, you know, uh, on the uh, ends of it, and then everything in between. The Catholic Church and the Christian Church, you know, if you want to say Christian Christianity, and that's, I'm sure that's true in in Islam and in Judaism and every uh, you know Hinduism. You know, you have the liberal end of it, and you have the conservative end of it. Um, but I just feel that um, as soon as you try to organize that, um, as soon as you tell people to follow rules rather than set guidelines and give them practical, real practical ways of achieving, um, you know, of bettering themselves and improving ourselves, that's the problem with religion. They don't really give you a practical way of actually doing the things they say you should do. Now, how do you be a better person? How can you be more nonviolent in your thought, in your speech? You know, what are the practical ways of doing that? You know? Well, the early Christians lived communally, and that that uh, is probably what we were intended to to do to to look out for one another. And, and the, which leads me to my next question, which is, um, uh, yoga seems to be very much an individual practice. Does it? Does it cut you off? Do you feel separated from the rest of the community by practicing yoga? Oh, no. No, because the effects uh, connect me to people more. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a real loner. I live alone. I enjoy it. I defend my alone time. And I, I like to socialize, but in small amounts. Um, you know, at the same time, I look kindly upon the world. I have a, you know, I, ha- I, I ex- expect people to be kind, and I... I believe that most people are kind unless I learn otherwise. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, for me, the physical and emotional relief that I get from the, a practice of yoga uh, makes me feel kind toward people and makes me uh, feel connected, you know, to people that I wouldn't ordinarily choose to have as friends or you know, um, so for me, no, it's actually been a connecting factor rather than um, a separating thing, although it is a practice that I do alone. Uh, yeah. Where do you suppose BKS Iyengar is now? Oh, 
my goodness gracious, who knows? Um, uh, you know, see, that's you're more of an expert on that than I am. See, I'm just a newbie with this NDE stuff. And the, <laughs> so you tell me. I mean, is he? Is he? It, so what I've so far what I've gleaned is that okay, we die. We we our consciousness goes back to join the the great all, but we retain our individuality and our memory of this life. Uh, and at the same time, we you know um, we either choose to go on to another life at some point, or we blend and go off somewhere else. You know. And, and that's all very mysterious. So, you know, actually, gosh, but I, I well, do he, feel his presence. I have to say that um, I invoke his presence uh, when I practice and when I teach, for sure. It, and I, I sometimes feel he's in the room. You know, yeah. All right. Yeah. That's. I was wondering if 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 that was something since he was basically uh, equivalent to an enlightened master in his own particular area of expertise. Uh, whether he was sticking around with his students and with uh, the world in general. I mean, uh, the notion of uh, um, mystics who can either merge with the light or come back and wait for the other, the rest of us to the mature. Bodhisattva, uh, yeah, yeah. The bodhisattva notion, yeah. exactly. Right. Well, that he, would, he could be, he could be doing that. Who knows? It's just a, that's something, um, I don't know if we can know that. That that now well while we're still in this physical world, I don't know right. if that's something that's kind of beyond human understanding at this point. You know, as long as we're human in the human form, I don't know that we can really um, get a, a whole picture of that. You know what? You know. What was he like as a person? <laughs> well, as a teacher, he was a taskmaster. He was very harsh, um, demanding. Um, uh, relentlessly demanding. Um, as a person, socially, he was like a sweet old man. So you saw both both sides of his personality then. Right. Well, mostly I saw him in, in, as a student. So he was um, he would he just instilled fear into your heart. <laughs> <laughs> but he would and he would just basically um, push you through the work. Um, and and you you know you'd think you were going to die, <laughs> and then at the end of it you'd have nothing but absolute gratitude. Um, he was a great, great teacher, brilliant. I mean, it's, it's indescribable, the experience of being his student. I was very fortunate um, to have been taught by him as much as I was. Um, there are teachers senior to me who have had more experience of him. Those are the people I invite to come here and teach um, the summer workshops. Um, they've, had more, they've had real longevity as students with him. I, I did go to the Institute frequently, uh, from 1989 onwards, uh, once every year, every two years, uh, to study there. And I, I did have a lot of um, him, but I also was taught uh, by his daughter, Gita, who um, from the early 90s took over teaching most of the classes for the, at least for the for the student, for the teachers um, and the, the long-time practitioners. And what part he was of always India? there and he taught, but he wasn't officially the teacher. Uh um, he would just, you know, take over the class, and um, his, he was always there. Yeah. What part of India was it? Is it located in? In Pune, which is in Maharashtra state, um, the western uh, armpit. Uh, it's kind of like western, mid middle western part of the uh, India. Mm-hmm. Uh, Back in the '60s, I had friends that would go to India trying to gain uh, two weeks worth of enlightenment, or even <laughs> longer. 
Chris, <laughs> did you did you feel that it's a spiritual uh, country, or no more than oh, anywhere else? Oh, no more okay. than anywhere else. Uh, the, the, the people the, you have to understand that religion is not something that people in India or you know in many countries in the world religion is an everyday thing. They live according to the religion. They don't just go to, uh, to church on Sunday and that's the end of it. They every day, you know, it's like they. So it's bound up with daily life much, much more uh, than here in the West. Um, but I would not say that, um, you know, again, there's a difference between spirituality and organized religion. Um, and there's just as much violence in India's history, and they do have a, a terrible, terribly unfair caste system. Yes, and as I said, the backbone of that caste system is the Bhagavad Gita, which is the equivalent of our, you know, it's the most widely read Hindu. It's like our Bible. The, you know, people read it like we read the Bible, or Muslims read the the Quran. You know, that's the book, and it um, supports the caste system. You know, Kim, we have run out of time, unfortunately. Uh, a half hour goes very quickly. Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, on very short notice, we just contacted each other the other day, and that was because you'd gotten in touch with uh, IANS. Right. So I'm glad. Exactly. I'm glad you're you're interested in what we're doing. And I'm so uh, curious about it. Yes, I'm so glad we made that connection. Yeah, it was terrific. a miracle that you live just around the, just over there, <laughs> like 25 minutes away from here. Well, I guess, I guess a couple of weeks ago was uh, lives in India, so oh, through the miracle of Skype, we can do all sorts of communication. Oh, yes, I, I listened to that on the podcast. Yes. That was a good interview. Yeah. Susan, yeah. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. Uh, tell tell folks uh, your website address so they can... Oh, yes. Well, it's Iyengar. That's spelled I-Y-E-N, and like Nancy, that is. G-A-R, Iyengar, Yoga, Maine, M-A-I-N-E, dot All right. Com. Yeah. Terrific. And there's com. lots of information about him, uh, the teachings of Iyengar on, on the Internet. You can just Google it. Terrific. Yeah. If, if listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the past shows button. And for information about IANS, go to their website at iands.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.